Well, that's the bell. It's time to get started. If you have your Bible, go ahead and turn it to Romans chapter 4. Good morning on the last Sunday of 2023. And thanks for being in this Romans Bible class. Don't worry, John already pressed record. So, we're to do that. Uh, last week we left off in chapter 3. I'm just putting this old slide back up there to more jog my memory than yours. And remind you about where we left off with Paul. You remember Romans chapter 1, Gentiles of sin, starting in verse 18 of Romans 1, Paul says, The wrath of God is poured out on them, and their ungodliness is shown in their deeds. God had not given Gentiles the law, but he did give them natural revelation, and it should have drew, drew them to God. But instead they fell into idolatry. Paul says God's wrath is poured out on them. Romans chapter 2, the Jews, they've got the law. Are they any better? Nope. Paul says, no, Romans 2, 1, you're an excusable old man and that you judge another. Don't you also judge yourself? Romans chapter 3, Jews and Gentiles, all of sin. The famous Romans 3, 23, all of sin and all the short of the glory of God. But then Paul says, now we're freely justified through faith in Christ Jesus, which should have been good news. Romans 3, 27, Paul says, where then is boasting? It's, it's excluded. By works of the law? No, but instead by works of faith. And so Paul says Jews and Gentiles are both under sin. That's bad news, but the good news is salvation comes by grace through faith, and Jews and Gentiles qualify. And based on that, everybody can be justified, saved, made right with God. And you would think after Paul has said that that would be good news for the Jews and that they would move past this, try to be justified by the law. Look at Romans 3.28 because Paul makes a statement that just can't be overcome. He says, by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. So nobody's going to be made right with God by law keeping, by merely doing what the law says, especially circumcision. 329, Paul says, in fact, the one that is truly circumcised is the one that has an inward circumcision of the heart and not that which is outward from man. So now in Romans chapter 4, Paul's going to give more information because the Jews aren't just going to accept this off. But, well, hey. We're justified with God by faith, just like the Gentiles. They probably feel like, or at least Paul anticipates, that Jewish people are going to push back against this and say, hey, well, what about the promises? And what about the covenant? And what about our former spiritual advantage over the Gentiles? We're not going to like that. And so in Romans 4, Paul's going to introduce Abraham. Now, has anybody in here ever been in a religious discussion with somebody? And um, every time you bring up an argument, well, they've got to rebut them. Every time you bring up a passage... They've got a passage. How do you try to get somebody to see the truth? Not your point of view, but to see the truth. When every time you bring up something, they say, yeah, well, there's this Bible passage over here. Or if you bring up something God said, they say, yeah, that's true too. But hey, what about this? How do you, how can we try to get people to reason well and come to the truth? Paul does this all the time throughout the New Testament. And if we pick up on Paul's evangelistic cues and his hacks on trying to turn the hearts of people who may be stubbornly defiant, it'll help us when we reach out to other people. So what do we do when people won't submit to God's will or when they have their own hangups, intellectually or otherwise, that make them say, no, I'm not going to believe that. I'm going to go this way. How do we try to help people change their minds? What do we do? Roger's saying we choke them. Okay. <laughs> or maybe it's tied, tied, I don't know. Um, but we all in the same color, which is pretty cool. But anyway, all right, so we don't choke them, but what, what do we do? So often when when you're studying with someone and they say yes but it says over here mm -hmm. you have to kind of teach context because people that you're studying with often don't know enough about the bible and they'll just pick it 
pick and choose. That's right. And that's where their argument lies. It can be, yes. So the pick and choose, the Golden Corral Bible study method, we just kind of go around and pick verses. And Jesus would use the context argument. You remember with Satan? Satan quotes Psalm 91 and Jesus says, it's written again. What was Jesus doing? He was drawing Satan back to the context and saying, hey, Bible verses don't fight with one another. They harmonize together. So part of what we do is we call people back to the context. Anything else we do? say the opinions aside or what you've already what you already have known before <clears throat> Bible only. Okay, so we get people to remove their opinions out of the way. Most people that believe what they believe, by the way, they don't think it's their opinion. They think it's law and it's right. But yeah, we get people to move their opinions aside and hey, we're just gonna talk about the Bible. But what if they're using Bible too? What if they say, okay, that's exactly what I want to do. I just want to use the Bible, which by the way is what the Jews are doing. They're saying, hey Paul, but there's stuff in the Old Testament that proves You've got to be circumcised, and we're God's covenant people, and if the Gentiles want in, that's fine, but they've got to be circumcised. What do you do then? Russell? Well, we're under the new law. We've got to put the old law away. It's a schoolmaster. And Paul's going to make that argument. Paul's going to say, go ahead, Russell. Sorry, go ahead. It's a schoolmaster for us to learn by, but we're under the new law. Right, we're under the new law. We we make all those arguments. Here's what I want us to see, and Paul does this. Whether you're talking to somebody about instrumental music, marriage, the church, baptism, what Paul does is Paul, and we should do this when we talk to people that are of religious mind that disagree with us on things, Paul takes things that are near and dear to them, and he basically says, okay, you really appreciate this? Well, just so you know, the very thing you appreciate helps to make my argument. Paul says, well, you like Abraham, don't you? You love Abraham. I mean, he's the father of the faithful. And in Romans chapter 4, Paul's going to say, if you really like Abraham, if you really love and adore Abraham, you would think just the way I'm thinking because Abraham's proof of this. Okay, somebody says, you really love the Old Testament? Well, the Old Testament itself speaks of his expiration date. So if you really want to be faithful to the Old Testament, you'll do exactly what the Old Testament is pushing you to do and come over to the New pointing people to the things they care about and love and cherish and saying, hey, those very things point you to the truth. Jesus did this all the time. He was talking to the Sadducees in Matthew 22, and they don't believe in the resurrection. And Jesus says, well, you believe in the first five books of the Bible, but even in Exodus chapter 3, God spoke to Moses at the burning bush, and your own Bible says he's the God of the living and not of the dead. When Paul went to Athens on Mars Hill, he says, hey, you've got all of these gods. You've got all of these altars to these unknown gods. Well, I came to talk to you about this one. Reasoning with people, starting from their starting point, taking their own evidence and saying, hey, here are some things that you probably should consider. So in Romans chapter 4, Paul's going to say what he's already been saying. We're justified not by keeping the Old Testament law, but by what? Everybody. But by faith in Christ Jesus, which in Romans and in the New Testament doesn't mean sit down and believe. It means trusting in God, allegiance pledged to God, and following through and obeying. So it doesn't, when you read faith, don't think about what our world thinks about the faith. Just believe. In the Bible, faith always means confident trust, which leads me to obey based on the one I put my faith in. And so Paul's going to use Abraham because they like him. All right, so some preliminary information about Abraham. You might already know this, but this is just to get us oriented to what Paul's going to be talking about as we go through. Genesis 12, 1 through 3, God calls Abraham. You remember? God calls him when he's Abram and says, Leave father, family, kindred, country, go to a land that I'll show you. A land flowing with milk and honey, I'll make of you a great nation, and all nations of the world will be blessed through Abraham. That's the promise that God makes to Abraham. Is Abraham a faithful man or unfaithful? Faithful. faithful. He's not faultless. He's not perfect. But for the most part, Abraham's faithful. In fact, Abraham has some ups and downs, but eventually 
God reiterates the promise to him in Genesis 15. And in verse 6, famous verse, quoted by Paul in Romans 4, quoted by James. Genesis 15, 6 says, And then Abraham believed God, and it was credited to his account as righteousness. Abraham left home when God told him to leave. Abraham obeys when God tells him to obey. And God says in Genesis 15, 6, based on that, Abraham, you believe God and it was credited to your account as righteousness. Later on in Genesis chapter 17, later on in Genesis chapter 17, God tells Abraham, by the way, as a sign that you and I are on the same page and as a sign that your descendants after you will always be blessed, Genesis 17, 9 through 14, he says, Abraham, I want you to get circumcised and everybody in your house, everybody in your house after you, on the eighth day, all males are to be circumcised as a sign of the covenant. But remember, keep it in order. Abraham was already counted righteous in Genesis 15. Circumcision came after. That matters. That's the argument Paul's going to make. Abraham was already considered a good guy, favored, blessed, and accounted righteous before circumcision. Afterwards comes circumcision, not to get Abraham credit with God, but just simply to prove that he was in covenant relationship with God. Has anybody ever tried to talk to a person? Now, we're going in the same direction we were before about becoming a Christian and maybe a coworker or family member about the gospel, and you've been unable to convince them because maybe they have prior beliefs or something was keeping them from the faith. That ever happened to you? You try to talk to somebody about becoming a Christian. What would you say are the primary reasons on why people refuse to become Christians? Some of the hangups that people have on becoming Christians. What do you think are some of the issues people face or maybe that you've run into as you've tried to talk with people about becoming a Christian and a person might want to, but they're scared or they're doubtful or hesitant because of what are some of the reasons? Family traditions. Family traditions. Okay. Family traditions don't want to let down who? Mom, dad, grandma. Grandma's always coming in, right? We can't let down grandma, grandpa. Okay. Family traditions. What else? Pass unworthy. I'm unworthy. Done too much. God can save anybody but me. Okay, what else? I think it's spiritual about being religious. Travis says they're set in their ways. Anybody know anybody set in their ways? <laughs> Nobody set in their ways. Yeah, they're set in their ways. What does somebody say about? I can be spiritual without being religious. I can be spiritual. I don't have to be religious. I'm already right with God. You know, one of the major reasons that I find, at least in talking to people about becoming Christians, and one of the hangups people have, everything that's been said has been true, but I'm dealing with something that I think is specific to Romans 4. And again, I want Paul to show us how he does evangelism to people already Christians, but trying to help these Jewish people see right and not buying things on the Gentiles. One of the hangups that I find people running into is that they think that if they become Christians, they're going to lose something. They're worried about giving up something. And it ought to change the way that we approach people. What if instead of focusing on everything people have to give up to become Christians, we instead focus on everything they gain? So many people think they're going to lose. Here's what I mean. What if instead of getting somebody to see, hey, you know, you've got to quit the choir and you've got to quit the singing group. What if instead we focused on, hey, now you get to be a part of God's congregational choir and everybody in God's church sings together? What if instead of getting somebody to see, you might have to give up premarital sex or whatever other vice you have, what if instead we focused on, hey, now you get to gain the liberty that comes from Jesus Christ and you can live your life freely for him and in him? What if it wasn't just about giving up things? What if individuals realized that instead of um, you might have to leave the church of mommy and daddy and come to ours? What if instead it was when you obey the gospel, you come to God's church and we've got great news for you. This is not our church. It belongs to God. And there's enough room for your mom, your dad, your grandpa, for everybody. What if it wasn't about simply what people have to give up? Or as Paul's going to show us, 
what if it's not about you got to give up the old law and all the privileges of being associated with Abraham? What if instead it is, hey, now that you're justified by God through faith, you don't lose any of those things. In fact, you have all of those things and then some. We've got to get people to see Christianity never makes your life worse. It always makes your life better. Christianity might make your life harder. But nobody's ever become a Christian and their life becomes worse. But people think that I can't become a Christian because I'm going to lose this, this and this. And I know Christianity is about some surrender. I believe that the gospel teaches that. But it's not just about surrender. And if we only teach people that in becoming Christians, they have to give up some things. We're going to underemphasize the things that Jesus taught. It's like a peanut butter and jelly sandwich without the jelly. It's going to be hard to swallow. I mean, if people realize, hey, it's all about what I have to give up. What about what they gain, though? What if they're really winning and not losing? Christianity never makes your life worse. You see people on the fence about being a Christian. Well, I don't know if I want to be baptized. It's only going to get better for you if you become a Christian. Whatever you think you had in any other religious system, Christianity offers that and then some, not less. What Paul says in Romans 4 is, hey, Jewish people, don't worry about being justified by faith. I promise you, you're not losing your position in Jesus Christ. In fact, it's being elevated higher than it ever has before. Paul argues from the positive to get these folks to see your life's not being downgraded by turning to Jesus. In fact, your life's going to be improved and it's going to be better. What does Jesus say in John 10 and verse 10? I've come that they might have life and more abundant. have it more abundantly. Okay, all of that to get us ready for Romans 4 so you don't lose track of what Paul is doing. In Romans 4, Paul is using Abraham as an example of what it means to be justified by faith. He's doing this for the Jewish Christians in the churches in Rome. Remember, the primary issue in the congregations in the church at Rome is Jews and Gentiles struggling to get along together. Later on in the letter, Paul's going to say some things to the Gentiles. They've got some issues too. But right now, in the first eight chapters or so, Paul's dealing with Jewish people who are Christians who are saying, I'm good with Gentiles becoming Christians so long as they get circumcised first. Paul first reasoned in the first three chapters that it makes sense that everybody be justified by faith because of your own lives. You're both sinners and you can't perform your way into God's good graces. But now in Romans 4 and 5, he's going to say it also makes sense because look at people like Abraham. This has kind of always been the way. All right, let's go to Romans 4 and I'm going to read the first 12 verses. Romans 4, 1 through 12. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is this blessing then only for the uncircumcised or also for the, is this blessing only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. Verse 11, he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. And to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but 
who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. All right. Let's start with verse number one. Paul introduces this with a question. And notice verse one. He says, what then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? What do we know about Abraham? I gave you some preliminary stuff, but what would Jewish people think about Abraham? What would people think about Abraham? Father of the faith? What else? What would a Jewish person think about Abraham? Some of it is in verse 1, or at least one of the things they would think about him. He is what? Justified by what he did. Justified by what he did? Yeah, our forefather. You see that in verse 1? Our forefather according to the flesh. One of the ways that God's referred to in the Old Testament, especially in the book of Exodus, is he's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Why those three? Because if you start reading in Genesis chapter 1, initially, the first 11 chapters, you've got Adam, Eve, Cain, Abel, Noah. But it's a kind of general thing until chapter 12. And then God says, okay, we tried the whole world. Everybody's flunking. I'm going to use Abraham's seed. And after that, I'm going to bless everybody through them. Abraham is the one who gets the ball rolling. There's no more revered person in all of the Old Testament in the Jewish mind outside of Abraham. There is no Jewish nation. There is no circumcision. There is no covenant without Abraham. And so Paul says, well, let's start with Abraham. I'm telling you, it's by faith. It's not by works of the law. But you're not going to argue with Abraham, are you? And so he starts with verse 1 by saying, what about our forefather Abraham? And so he mentions some things about the life of Abraham. If Abraham was justified by works, he would have something to boast about. Verse 2 is very important. Paul says if Abraham was justified by his works, by what he did, he would have something to brag about. If Abraham earned it, there would be need to brag, but not before God. That's Paul's way of saying, but no way, that didn't happen. Look at verse 3. What does Scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So Paul has already told you, if you go back up to verse 27 of chapter 3, Maybe you draw a line in your Bible from Romans 4 and verse 2 all the way back up to Romans 3.27. Look at Romans 4 and verse 2. He says, if Abraham was justified by works, he would have something to boast about. Abraham could brag. But what did he already said in chapter 3 and verse 27? Who gets to boast? Nobody. Everybody. Who gets to boast? Nobody. Nobody. Not even who? Not even Abraham. Nobody gets to boast, not even Abraham. He says in verse 3, he gets right to the point. Abraham was justified because he believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Okay, let's go to Genesis 15 because Paul mentions this passage and I just want us to read it in context so we'll see what Paul's talking about. If anybody gets confused as we work through this today, don't worry. I was confused Thursday and Friday working through it too. But if you do get confused, raise your hand and stop me and say, say that again. I'm kind of getting lost here. Remember Paul's whole point. Everybody's justified by faith. Abraham's just an example of that. And so look at Genesis 15, 1 through 6. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abraham. I am your shield. Your reward will be very great. Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you've given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man will not be your heir, but your very own son will be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven, number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, This is what your offspring will be. And then look at verse 6. Abraham believed the Lord, and then what happened? Counted as Tim is righteousness. Paul goes in Romans 4 and he says, Hey, let's talk about Abraham. 
how did Abraham get made right with God? If it was by his works, he'd have something to boast about, but not before God. What does Genesis 15, 6 say? When did God credit Abraham's account with righteousness? When did God put righteousness or right standing in Abraham's bank account? When Abraham got circumcised, everybody go like this. No. But Abraham believed God, and then it was credited him for righteousness. Why is that such a big deal? It is the biggest deal. Look at Romans 4, and notice what Paul says in verse 4. He says, now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but his due. What does that mean? What is Paul saying in verse 4? And why is it a big deal that Abraham is considered a good guy, favored, righteous, before he does any work? The answer is in verse 4. What is Paul saying here? If Abraham was accounted righteous based on what he did, then what about his salvation and favor? What was Paul? What is Paul saying in verse 4? It wouldn't be a gift, but it would be his what? Now, why is that a big deal? If Abraham did the right stuff, Abraham did all the right works, Abraham behaved well, he shows up before God, and it's not a gift now. Abraham has a receipt, and he's saying, God, you owe me. Why is that a big deal? You can earn it and put God in your what? In your debt. And God's never in anybody's debt. See, salvation has to be by grace through faith, because if it's not, then we put God in our debt. That's what Paul says in verse 4. If, it, if it's not a gift, then it's reckoned according to his due. If you're going to say Abraham was made right with God because of the things he did on his own merit, now God owes Abraham all of a sudden. Just as a little side note, God's never in anybody's debt. Luke 17 and verse 10, Jesus says, Even after we've done all that's been commanded of us, we should say we're wicked and unprofitable servants, and we've done that which is our duty to do. Nobody can come before God and say, well, you owe it to me. Abraham was considered righteous because he trusted in God and believed. And then he quotes from David in verses 6 through 8. Paul says, David speaks also of the blessing to whom God counts righteousness. And he quotes from David in Psalm 32, 1 and 2. In addition to be, being counted righteous, another blessing that comes is what? According to David in verse 7 and verse 8 of Romans 4. Abraham's counted righteous. He also brings up David, another Old Testament hero. And what are one of, what's one of the blessings that David mentions in verse 7 and verse 8? Somebody mentioned it. What was it, Gary? Forgiveness. Forgiveness. And so he says, hey, not only was Abraham counted righteous without works, but even David says, blessed is the person who gets forgiveness. What is Paul doing? Paul's using all of these Old Testament people, at least two, Abraham and David, that they knew, that they loved. And he's saying, hey, this isn't different. What I'm telling you isn't anything different. It's the way it's always been. How should this information in Romans 4, 1 through 8, change the way we sometimes read the Old Testament? We agree with it more than we think we do. We agree with it more than we think we do. Yes, we need to stop acting like, you know, God was very angry in the Old Testament. He went to counseling in the intertestamental period and learned grace and truth. And that's how we sometimes treat it. God was wrathful, angry, and then, hey, New Testament, okay, time to be nice to folks. Here comes Jesus, die for their sins and forgive. Sherry, we agree with it more than we think we do. But there, there's more to it. Andy? I think sometimes in the Old Testament we get the impression that you know, with the sacrifices and stuff that that they're kind of earning their forgiveness. Yeah, I would even take off the kind of. Anybody ever had or heard or thought? In the Old Testament, it was about works. It was all on what you did. And in the New Testament, it's about what? Grace. According to Paul, we borrow grace from Abraham. Paul's saying God didn't do anything new. That's the strength of his argument to the Jewish people. Salvation has always been by grace through faith. It's not a New Testament concept. It reaches its zenith in Jesus Christ. 
but it's always been that way. If it hasn't been that way, then God's been in people's debt. Don't you see Paul saying, look, Abraham was justified by grace through faith. David did the same thing. And what I'm telling you Jewish folks now is it's the very same way. We've got to reshape the way we read the Old Testament. Yes, the sacrifices. Yes, the deeds that they had to do. But it never earned anybody anything. Anybody who hears well done, good and faithful servant from God. Doesn't matter when they've lived. Doesn't matter who they are or where they're from. They're going to be saved by grace or through faith. And Paul says... It's always been that way. Somebody said, I don't know about that. Abraham's exhibited it. It's always been by grace through faith. Think about Noah. The world's wicked. Genesis 6 and verse 8 says, but Noah found what in the eyes of the Lord? Genesis 6, 8. Favor or grace in the eyes of the Lord. Why? That's the only way God saves. Can't you see Paul loosening the grip of these Jewish folks as they're saying, hey, I want to be saved just like Abraham through circumcision. Paul says, you are, but it's not through circumcision. It's by grace through faith. All right, and then Paul says, who are the blessings reserved for? Look at Genesis, I mean, Romans 4, 9, and 10. Is the blessing then in verse 9 only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? Don't look at your Bible, just look up for a second. I'm going to ask you the question. Is the blessing only for the circumcised or the uncircumcised? Who's it for? It's for both groups. Paul says it's for both. And he says, how do you know it's for both, by the way? How do you know that? I'm not talking about them in the Bible. I'm asking you. How do you know that the blessing of forgiveness that he mentioned in verses 7 through 8 is for circumcised and uncircumcised? What would you say up to this point? How do you know? Because it's grace. Because it's grace and? Because Abraham was reckoned righteous before he was circumcised. Yeah, and, yeah Abraham was counted righteous before he was circumcised. It's grace. It says so. Paul already told you. Yeah, Paul already, that was the easier answer. You always confuse me, but I think it's easy. It's hard. Paul already told him. Paul said that already. But now he says, look at verse 10. What about Abraham? How was it counted to him? Was it before or after he was circumcised? When did Abraham get considered righteous? Before or after his circumcision? Before. God told him in Genesis 15, 6. Circumcision comes in Genesis 17. What does this tell you about God? What does this tell you about God? God circumcised Abraham or had him circumcised in 17, but counted him righteous in 15. What does it tell you about Abraham's life? It'll help us in how we view our lives. What do we learn about God? Paul's going back to the Old Testament. He's not just quoting the Old Testament. He's making an argument based on the way things are ordered in Abraham's life. He's saying, hey, Abraham's called in 12, justified in 15, circumcised in 17. He's circumcised in chapter 17. Look at Romans 4, 11 through 12. He says, circumcision was not given to earn righteousness, but it was a seal that he had by faith. And he was, the purpose of circumcision was to make him the father of all of those who later were circumcised and believed. Circumcision wasn't to earn anything. It was a sign that you were in God's family and hopefully doing all the things that you should. But what does Paul's use of Abraham here teach us about God and about Abraham's life? God looks on the heart. God looks on the heart. Yes, he looked at Abraham's faith and obedience before Abraham ever did anything. Okay. The righteous shall live by faith. The just and the righteous shall live by faith. It also says, though, God doesn't do anything by accident. Thousands of years before Paul wrote this, God pronounced Abraham <coughs> justified before he was circumcised on purpose. It wasn't, you're not reading the things in Genesis by happenstance. The things happened on purpose and in order so that thousands of years later, Paul could look back at Abraham's life and say, hey, by the way, just so you know, justification came first and then circumcision. You read it in Genesis and you think, well, maybe this is just happening. God knows. In a couple of thousand years, there are going to be some Jewish people that struggle with circumcision. 
Let's justify Abraham first, and then we'll circumcise him after. God didn't do anything by accident. And there isn't anything by accident in our lives. We sometimes think things are just happening. They're just clashing together. But what if God is orchestrating the events in order, on purpose, for a reason, for things we can't even see down the line? He is the God who does all things well. He knows the end from the beginning, Isaiah 46.10. You read through Genesis and you think, hey, this is a cool story about Abraham. Every single detail of it happens in order for a reason. So Paul could go back later and say, well, according to the record, justification came first and then circumcision. And he makes that argument based on the way the events played out in Abraham's life. Don't get your chapter 17 before your chapter 15. Let God do all the arranging. Don't copy and paste any parts. Let God be in control. That's what he does. All right, Genesis 4, I mean Romans 4, 13 through 25. Let's see what happens next here. Paul continues with this same argument. Let's get somebody to read Genesis, Romans 4, 13 through 25. Who wants to read that? Romans 4, 13 through 25. It's a long section, but it'll get us to the end of this chapter. For the promise that he would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void, and the promise made of no effect. Because the law brings about wrath, for where there is no law, there is no transgression. Therefore it is of faith that it might be according to grace, so that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. In the presence of him whom he believed, God, who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did, who, contrary to hope, in hope believed, so that he became the father of many nations according to what was spoken, so shall your descendants be. And not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body already dead, since he was about a hundred years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully convinced that what he had promised he was able also able to perform and therefore it was accounted to him for righteousness now it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him but also for us it shall be imputed to us who believe in him who raised up jesus our lord from the dead who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification okay in this section paul is not going to give us any new information but he is going to drill down on some more stuff about abraham so in verse 13 paul's not done using abraham as an example look at verse 13 the promise to abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world didn't come through the law but through the righteousness of faith there wasn't any old testament law the old covenant law came 430 years after abraham according to galatians 3 17 through 18. so paul's saying hey this is paul's point guys People can be made right with God without the Old Testament law, including the Gentiles. Proof of that, Abraham was made right with God before there was ever any Old Testament law. It wasn't even there. People have always been able to be made right with God without the law. The law has a purpose, but remember, it's not to make people right. It's to highlight the fact that you're a sinner and you need God's help. And so he's saying, hey, Abraham was made right through faith. This isn't anything new. God was preaching the gospel to Abraham before Moses ever had those two tablets in his hand. Paul calls it the gospel, by the way, in Galatians 3 and verse 8. He says God preached the gospel before to Abraham. Christianity, the plan of salvation, how we're saved, it's not a New Testament concept. It's not anything new. It's not new. And we need to read the Old Testament through that lens. Paul's showing us how this is done. Read the Old Testament and look for how people were made right with God. They're made right with God the same way we are. 
Now, the conditions were different. They were under a different covenant, but it was always trust God and do what he says, and God will justify you because he's nice enough to do it in his grace, not because you've earned it. And he's saying, look at Abraham's life, same thing. And then he says, God's not a liar. Romans 4, 16 and 17. This is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring. Not only the adherents of the law, but also to the one that shares in the faith. Who did God tell Abraham he was going to be a blessing to? To which nation? All of them. All the nations. So it would have to be through faith because the law was only given to who? Jewish, Jewish people. And so if God wanted to bless everybody. He was going to have to find a different way to do it outside of the law because the old covenant law would have only blessed this little group of people over here. How could God bless everybody and not be a liar? Well, let's create a system where everybody can be made right with God. And Paul's saying that's why it's about faith. Because you're sinners, look at Abraham, but also God's promises. The truthfulness of God is on trial. If you think Abraham was made right according to his own doings and according to circumcision, you're going to have a problem with how is God going to keep his word and fulfill his promises because Gentile people are not under the law. Last thing Paul does before we go to chapter 5 is he talks about how strong Abraham's faith was to trust in God when and how he did. Now, before I put up these 20 bullets and you start writing like crazy, let's have a conversation. All right, let's talk about this. What made it difficult for Abraham to believe God? Because you might be sitting there and you're thinking, oh, great, yes. Um, it's not by works of the law. I knew that already. I'm glad it's not. It's by faith. And yes, I have to trust in Jesus. But Paul is saying something else, too. Trust in Jesus and faith isn't necessarily the easy route. Paul's not saying that. Paul's saying, hey, it's not circumcision or just easy street. It's not circumcision. It's faith. But faith isn't always easy. Faith isn't intellectual alone. I know that's the reformers, Martin Luther and the guys from the 1500s onward. And we talk to religious people today, and they think faith means just mental assent. Just sit on your do nothing and do nothing. Just believe. That's it. That's not faith in the Bible. Faith in the Bible, the word pistis in the New Testament, it always means obedience to someone else based on the fact that you trust them completely. Now, before we look at what made Abraham's faith so strong, tell me why was it difficult for Abraham to believe? I mean, because if it was just meant to say, okay, God, you're going to do this, why would Abraham be praised? Abraham is praised for his faith because he overcame some things in his trust in God that not just anybody could overcome. What was challenging for Abraham? He's old. Abraham's old. Yeah. Yeah. Everybody in Abraham's circle was throwing retirement parties, and Abraham's having to throw on a baby shower, right? There's a difference. Abraham's an old man. He says as much in Genesis 17. He says, Well, I, an old man, be able to give birth. What does Sarah say in Genesis 18? Sarah's 90 years old, and she laughs, and God, okay, he's old. What else? What else? He left everything he knew and went. Just go, and I'll show you where to go. And then when he got there, there's a famine in the land. He goes to Egypt, Genesis 12, 10 through 20. He just goes. He doesn't even have direction. God doesn't tell him where. He just says a land somewhere, okay? And, and you know, it's hard enough for a person of that age to think he would have one child, but God said his descendants would be like the stars in the sky. Just because you have one child, it still takes a lot of faith to believe that's going to be... I know Sarah's eyes are like, what do you mean all these kids? Like, yeah. So, yeah, he, he hadn't had one. Here's the other thing. Remember, Abraham couldn't read about Abraham. Who is Abraham going to look? Who's his case study? Who are we going to point to where Abraham can say, well, I believe you're going to do this, God, because you did do it with, but who? There is nobody else. Abraham, you are going to be the first one. You're the poster child of faith. That's why he's the father of the faithful. 
God didn't communicate with anybody else like this until Abraham. There's some things about Noah, Genesis 6 through 9, but these are <laughs> radical promises, Abraham's first. So Paul says his faith is important. Remember, Christianity isn't going to make your life worse. It's going to make your life better. But that doesn't mean it's going to make your life easier. Salvation is by grace through faith. That's not circumcision, but that doesn't mean it's easy. And he's going to talk about what makes Abraham's faith so strong. Okay, now you can write. All right, but don't just write. Stay in Romans 4 with me, and let's look at some of these verses before we go to chapter 5. Look at Romans 4 and notice verse 18. This is more important than the worksheet, the content is. I know you don't believe me, but like we're living by works over here. Okay, look at Romans 4, 18. Paul says, in hope, he believed against hope that he should be the father of many nations, as he had been told. I think Romans 4, um, these sections here, 18 through 22, may be some of the strongest verses in the Bible about faith. If you think you have strong faith, put it up against these verses. If you have weak faith, sing these verses in your heart and let it change. Paul makes some of the strongest statements I've read anywhere in the New Testament about faith. Look at verse 18. He says, Abraham believed when he had every reason to doubt. This phrase, against hope, he believed in hope. What does that mean? It means Abraham had every reason not to believe that this was going to happen. And he just looked at unbelief in the face and he says, I'm going to keep believing. It doesn't matter what you say. Against hope, he believed in hope. How can we have hope even when there's no reason to hope? Turn off the screen so we got it. Right right? How can we have hope when there's no reason to hope? Okay, but I'm believing these promises and I don't see it coming about. I mean, because you got to think about what Abraham did. And I don't want to be graphic, but just indulge me for a second. Abraham and Sarah, mind you, are not having a miraculous child. This isn't Mary. They're going to have a child through natural conception like everybody else. Abraham believed God means him and Sarah remained sexually active so that they hoped it would happen. That's a part of Abraham's faith, by the way. Not to be graphic, but just to say, this isn't a miraculous conception. It's a natural one. Every month, Sarah realizes, no, nope, not this time, not going to happen. Okay, I believe God's promises, but how do I, against hope, believe in hope, even when everything in life is saying, I know God promised, I know he did, but it's not happening. It's not. It wasn't happening for Abraham. God speaks to Abraham at 75, according to Genesis 12 and verse 4. He has Isaac at 100, 25 years later, according to Genesis 21, 5. How do you keep your trust in a God like that for 25 years? What do you do in between Genesis 21 and Genesis 12? That's what this against hope, belief in hope is all about. And our answer to this question, it'll change us, it'll help us. So what do we do? How do you against hope, believe in hope? Meaning, when you got every reason to quit, how do you keep believing? That's what Paul says Abraham did in verse 18. Okay, Hebrews 11, 1, being sure of what you hope for, certain of what you don't see. Okay, that's involved. God doesn't break his promises. That's it, Alicia. So in the end. Remembering what he didn't break. In the end, our faith is not contingent upon, well, I've prayed before and things have happened. I mean, keep a running list, that's great. But faith rests on the character of God more than circumstances. If you think God is a liar, or God's a human, and he's wishy-washy. Sometimes he can't come through if he's in the mood. Sometimes he can't. You're going to be at the mercy of your circumstances. I mean, your faith will be strong when it goes your way and weak when it doesn't. But if our faith is more in the character of God than circumstances, against hope, Abraham believed in hope. God's not a liar. That's all I'm banking on. God said it. His character means more to him than my circumstances. I'm trusting God. That's what Abraham did. Look at verse 19. What else does it say about Abraham's faith? Somebody pull it out. Verse 19. 
what, did, what else does Paul say about Abraham's faith? He believed when he had every reason to doubt. Verse 19, his faith did not what? It didn't weaken. When we think about God's promises, what can cause our faith to get weak? We're expecting our timetable instead of his. Our timetable instead of his? Circumstance. Circumstance. We start looking around at all earthly reasons. We walk by faith, not by sight. Sometimes I have too much faith in my own eyes than I do in the God who gave them to me. Sometimes I'm too worried. I'm, I'm calculating. I'm planning. I like to know where things are going to go. I like to see how things are going to work out. And my faith is really in my own eyes. I say I believe God. I really believe Hiram with a little bit of God's help. See, Abraham's faith didn't weaken. What does that mean? It means Abraham's faith was as strong the day he left Ur the Chaldees as it was when he held Isaac in his arms. I know that's crazy to think about. After all that Abraham did, his faith didn't weaken. His faith didn't weaken. Do you still trust God like the day you got out of the baptistry and you said, I believe you cleansed my sins? By the way, when you got baptized, there weren't any sins floating in the pool. Like you didn't say, oh, there's lying there, there's adultery. I saw it washed away. We just believe that he cleansed us because he said he did. Abraham's faith didn't weaken. It continued to grow. Look at verse 20. Verse 20. So he believed when there was no reason. Verse 19, his faith didn't weaken. And then what else in verse 20? Uh, verse 19, that's his faith didn't weaken. Verse 20, no what? What does Paul say? What about his faith in verse 20? He didn't stagger, some translations have. No unbelief made him what? Waver. What does that mean? Wishy washy, yeah. I believe God if you. That wasn't Abraham. Abraham just said, I believe. One time a man was preaching a sermon and he was talking about his faith in God and he says, God says it, I believe it, that settles it. Somebody came up to him afterwards and said, You got that all wrong. God says it, that settles it, and I believe it. There's a difference. God, our belief in God's promises don't ignite them with truth. They were true whether we believe them or not. No unbelief made Abraham waver. He just stubbornly believed. The last one's in verse 21, and probably the strongest thing about Abraham's faith. What does it say about his faith in verse 21? He was fully convinced. Abraham was sure. Abraham was getting older. Abraham was still sure it's coming. And as Andy mentioned, not just the one child, God promised him many descendants. David? That goes right in line with Hebrews 11, where says that Abraham uh, trusts in, in uh, he was looking forward to that city that did not have foundations he was building and making his God. But he also said that all those died in faith having not quite received that. So Abraham's faith didn't hinge on whether or not God gave him what he wanted right then in earth. There, there are times that people live their whole life but they're looking for heavenly answers, yeah. uh, heavenly trust. And I think that's what real faith is, is walking through this life, not receiving those daily things that we pray about sometimes. We may never get those, but it's looking past that, looking forward uh, to things after this life. That's right. Abraham had long distance vision. And it says, if you look at verse 21, fully convinced that God was able this goes back to what Alicia said, fully convinced God was able to do what he promised God's going to do his part Marsha Keeble said one time if God tells me to jump through the wall, it's my responsibility to jump through the wall, it's God's responsibility to make the hole, right? I've got to do my part, but fully convinced God's going to do his part. Isn't that our problem with faith though? 
We're almost persuaded. Abraham's all together there. We're, we're not fully convinced. I mean, and here's the good news for us. God can work with that. I'm not saying if you're God, you've got to be 100% or God won't use you. I'm just telling you. And look at the punchline. This isn't me. This is Paul. Verse 22. That is why. Paul does all this to say, hey, that's why Abraham was selected. It wasn't what he did with his flesh. It's what he did with his faith. Paul said, by the way, it wasn't about Abraham getting cut on the right day. He lists all of these things about Abraham. His faith didn't weaken. His trust was strong. He believed in God. He never wavered. Then verse 22, Paul drops the mic and he says, that's why Abraham was kind of righteous. It had nothing to do with circumcision. And here's the thing. If you want what Abraham got, you're going to have to believe in trust like that, too. And anybody can do that. Anybody can go and get cut on the right day. Can you really be convicted and believe when you should? Look at how he ties it to Christianity in verse 23. It wasn't written for his sake alone, verse 23, but for ours also. It will be accounted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who delivered him up for our trespasses and raised him for our justification. So if we believe, just like Abraham, you're going to have a child no matter what, no matter when, God promised. He says, that's how Abraham was made right. Not when he got cut on in Genesis 17. If you believe in the promise of Jesus, his death, burial, and resurrection, in the same way, it wasn't just written for Abraham's sake alone. It was written for us too. We'll be justified the same way. Now, which one's harder to do? Be circumcised or to be altogether convinced that God will keep his promises? <laughs> Trusting in God to keep his promises. Paul's saying that's how justification happens, not by the works of the law. It's always been through faith. That's good news, but that doesn't make it easy. Russell, go ahead. Well, Meshach and Abednego, the easy thing would have been to just put out the fire, but what did God do? Yeah. He got in with them. He did. I guess you figured out by now we're not going to do Romans 5 today. <laughs> Some of you believe, though. Y'all have faith. Y'all have y'all ready. Let me say this before we close. Paul's making this case to the Jews to say, listen, you haven't lost anything by trusting in God to be saved through faith. It's not by works of the law. Everybody's justified by faith. This isn't new. God has always been doing this. Look at people like Abraham. Look at people like David. Your biggest issue, Paul is saying, is not trying to figure out the works of the law. Your biggest issue is everybody in the world's biggest issue. Always has been. Go back to Adam and Eve. Can you really trust him? Does your behavior prove that you do? See, that's faith. Adam and Eve, justified by faith. Hey, God, has God really said? Eve says, well, I don't know about that. She eats in defiance and disobedience. Why? Deceived, yes, but she didn't trust. The goal of the Christian life is to have obedient faith in God, trusting based on our belief. And Paul says, Jews and Gentiles, everybody in the world is justified that same way. And if we do that, we walk in the steps of Abraham, who is the father of faith. All right, Romans 5 next week, Lord willing. Thanks for a good Bible class. And I'm going to continue the worksheet so the same place for chapter 5.